Church, if you have your Bibles and as you remain standing, we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 8 this morning. Let us hear the word from the Lord. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself and your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards and I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even if in your law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And when they asked him, where is your Father? You know neither me nor my Father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would know my Father. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, this morning we are going to continue our plowing through the book of John, the gospel of John, as we have been for quite some time since the beginning of the year. For the most part, we're just getting back into it, took a little break, but we're glad to be back into it uh, this morning. Um, When I was a kid, I can remember distinctly when the things I'm about to describe to you came into being. They may have been there before then, but I don't remember that. But at Halloween, there was maybe mid-80s, the glow stick was invented. Yeah, if you're in, if you grew up in the '80s in some capacity, you remember the glow stick. Like when it first kind of came on the scene, you kind of clicked it, right? You did it, and then it glowed, and then like it would go on glow for what two or three hours, maybe, uh, sometimes longer if you just kept trying. You know, hopefully it would just stay as long as it could. And I just remember they only showed up around Halloween. Now, of course, now you can get them anytime, anywhere it feels like. But I remember getting those, and I thought that was the greatest thing in the world when I was a child, about mid '80s, about ten years old. Going, uh, going trick-or-treating or something with my friends um, and, uh, and having this, 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 this glow stick. And sometimes I try to sneak that glow stick back home after we get back and try to make the most of that glow stick. I was like, I got all this light that I still want to take advantage of. And so I would come back home and after we go to bed, I'd try to sneak it in and I put it in my covers and I didn't do a really good job of it because you can see the glow stick coming out from the covers and, you know, and, you know, but it was just one of those things I just loved the glow stick, especially an orange one. I don't know why. I, I didn't live in Tennessee at the time, but for some reason, orange was deeply embedded in me early in my childhood, I guess. Um, but I loved glow sticks. There was something about the light that would emanate from this glow stick under the covers, you know, or in your room that's really dark, and you're sitting there. It's like, it's kind of like the same thing as like if you're sitting around a campfire at night, and that fire and the imminent, the, 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 the lumens that come from the fire, and you're sitting there and you see the, maybe the silhouettes of some other brothers and sisters around the fire, and it just, there's just something about light that just shines forth in the darkness, isn't it? There's something very comforting about light that comes from, comes into the midst of darkness. Like, like the smallest amount of light can rid the world of some significant darkness. Amen? Amen. And today we are going to talk about the light of Christ. That Christ is the light. He has come into the world to dispel the darkness of our lives, to dispel the, the, the darkness of the world and, and, how, and expose it for what it really is and show people that, that they are far from God You and I sometimes find ourselves far from God. We certainly were far from God before we met Christ. 
and how we might live and walk in the light. And so if I had to summarize what we're going to talk about this morning, it would be this, that the Christian life defined would be we are a people of whom Jesus, the light of the world, calls out of darkness of sin and death and to live in the light of his life. That's the, if you really want to define what Christianity is, the Christian life is, is a people who, by whom Jesus, the light of the world, has called out of darkness of sin and death and then called us to walk in his light, the light of his life. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at the text before us. We're actually going to go all the way down through chapter to verse 30 this morning. I didn't read all the way down through there. We're going, to, we're going to put our thoughts under three headings. I'll go ahead and give them to you now so that you can kind of mark them out as we go. But the first heading we will look at is Christ our true light. We're going to really examine what is Christ saying here, what does this declaration mean, and what kind of hope it holds out for us. We're going to look at the second heading in the next few verses of the nature and root of the darkness that has been revealed. Like really take a look at what that darkness is and where it comes from and the nature of it. And then the third will be is the consequences of remaining in darkness. We need to take good uh, consideration of what it means for us if we choose to continue to walk in darkness. One of the things that I, my brother and I do constantly, he's a dear believer in Virginia, when we get on the phone, the one thing we always ask each other is, are you walking in darkness? Where do you need to walk in the light? Again, I think that's really one of the most fundamental things a Christian can do is to always examine ourselves. Am I walking in the light or am I walking in darkness? So this morning, let's talk about that first heading. Christ, our true light. Verse 12, let's read it again. Jesus spoke to them, and I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We're going to spend a good amount of time here for a few minutes. Because it's very important for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. And the perfect timing of what Jesus is saying here in terms of the context of John's gospel. Why did John put this particular statement, this particular declaration in light of everything that we've been studying the last few weeks? Because there is some very significant things John's doing here. He wants you and I to see if we were, if we'll take the time to examine them. That the background and the context you'll remember, we've been talking about the last two or three weeks, is this exchange that's began back in chapter 7 with the brothers who came to Jesus. And, and it's, the, it's the time of the festival of the booze, or maybe you might say the festival of the tabernacles. And that's the backdrop. This conversation that we have here in verse 12 is a continuation of everything that we've seen in chapter 7. So this conversation continues to unfold. And again, you remind, remind yourself, if you haven't been here, the Feast of the Tabernacles was that final festival of the annual Jewish calendar. And you'll and you remember that that's important because the three major festivals, right, uh, of the Jewish calendar, um, they all had theological, or might, we'll, use, we'll use a big word for you, eschatological significance. They always pointed to something that was there then that would be revealed something greater later, okay? Think about eschatology is when you read the Old Testament, it's something revealed then, but it's going to reveal something greater later, right? Best way to think about eschatology. And so when we look at the festival of the tabernacles, we are talking about that Jesus is preaching these specific things in chapter 7 and chapter 8 so that you and I would see that he's the better later. That Jesus, John wants us to see that Jesus is the better that has come. And he's come into this. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles specifically represent the joy of the full harvest of God's promises coming into fruition with Jesus. It was what it was meant to point to the entire time. And so each night at this festival, if you're not familiar with what happened, we haven't really described it yet. Let me describe it to you. They would light these massive burning like lamps, candles there in the, in the courtyard and around Jerusalem. 
And remember, this was, a, this was, of all the three festivals, the most popular one. People would come from all over the world. They'd set up these little temporary dwellings out and around the Jerusalem and inside Jerusalem just so they could live there uh, for a season. And, of course, there was significance to that as well. But they would light these big burning lights of the, at, at this Feast of the Tabernacles. And the people would feast for eight nights in celebration of God's light that would never end. That they were anticipating there was a day coming when Jesus, the light of God wouldn't just shine just for the people of Israel as they're you know, making their way around, but that God's light would shine brightly for the entire world to see. And, that, and Jesus, that is the light that has come into the world. And so this is all very, very important because one of the major liturgical verses that they would turn to would be Zechariah 14, 5 through 7. I'm not going to read it, but it says basically it, it, it announced the significance of the promised continual light on the last day, followed by the giving of living water, which we've already talked about in chapter 7. Now that's important to know as we get into this because the second thing we want to notice in this first verse, in verse 12, is that Jesus has, um, is making an unambiguous declaration about himself. He's not cloaking anything. In fact, the fact that he would say he's the light of the world tells you that he has no desire to cloak anything. He's not, being, he's not having some hidden meeting. He's not being nuanced. He is absolutely being as clear as he can be. I am the light of the world. And he's doing this on the backdrop of everything we just discussed. So vitally important. Because the word, the idea of light was important to the people of Israel. And so when he's making this statement about himself, please understand it came and it was received by the Jewish leaders with stunningly offensive force. He was making it very clear who he was and he was calling them out for not seeing it. This is what the scriptures do. This is what Jesus has come to do. And to take a deeper look into the importance of the fact that what light meant to the Old Testament in the Old Testament, we need to take maybe just take a, a high view of some things that have unfolded in the Old Testament to show you the importance of light that has been pointing to Jesus, the light of the world. That it was a metaphor that steeped into the tradition. I was very helped by D.A. Carson's commentary on this matter. Just think about first God, his light emanating there as they would tabernacle would move around in the wilderness. It would emanate there, the glory of God in the cloud that would lead his people through the, to the promised land and protected them to, and promised to protect them, that no one would destroy them. I mean, that's deep into Israel's own history outside of Egypt. Just as we just read in, in Psalm 136, and what God did to, to Egypt so that he might free them and how he's always been with them since that time. There's either every Jewish child and every Jewish adult, for that matter, would have been trained to sing, which, by the way, the Psalms are hymns for the Israel, Israel people. That's why we put Psalms so deeply into our service here, because they're songs. They're songs of declaration. They're songs of theology. And every Jewish child would have been trained to sing Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And they keep going deeper what does the psalmist say in 119 about the law of God itself? That it is a lamp unto my feet, a guide to my paths. 
Ezekiel 1.4 through 28 says God's light is shed throughout all of creation in this revelatory wonder that Ezekiel would say. One day that that's what's going to happen is that all the light that only certain people see right now will become exposed and will expose everything when that day comes. Everything. Or even the psalmist would say in Psalm 44, verse 3, that light, and this is what I love about this, light is Yahweh, or God, in action. Think about that. When there's light in the world, it is God moving into action, displaying, showing forth His glory to the world. Isaiah 49, verse 6, tells of a servant the Lord would appoint to the Gentiles, and the salvation would then lead the light to the ends of the earth. And lastly, in, in chapter 60 of Isaiah, and soon the Lord himself would light up the world and he would be the light for his people. The end of the matter here and what Jesus is saying has got to stick on our hearts and minds this morning. I wish for you not to leave this room and not make it abundantly clear. Jesus is declaring that he is God so any notion of people saying he never did that is absolutely fundamentally erroneous. But he is God who has come to tabernacle, i.e. the Feast of the Tabernacles. Tabernacle meant he dwelt with his people, among his people, and be their light until the full force of all of God's plans and promises will come to fruition. This is what Jesus is saying. I have come now. I'm tabernacling among you. I'm, 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 I'm sitting among you. I'm bringing you light so you can finish the journey. Church, when Jesus came the first time, although we wait for Jesus to come a second time, he has come for you and I so that he might be our light to help us finish the journey. We live in a very, very dark world, but we have the light of Christ to help us all the way to the end. But then there's, not, there's something else here that we want to take notice of because it's not just that, that first half, that declaration, but let's also make it very clear here that there is an absolute need for us to have the life of Christ in our life through his light. He makes it clear there, right? You will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Anyone who walks in darkness. In other words, what he's saying there is to understand that, that this, this, this use of light versus darkness juxtaposition here, we got to understand that darkness is, to walk into darkness is to be deceived, to be a blind people, to not be able to see what actually is. And in order for us to see what actually is, only Jesus can open up our eyes to see what actually is. And that's important for us, right? And John makes this idea, he embeds this idea throughout his Gospels, throughout his, actually his epistles later in the, in the Bible. But let's just consider a couple we've already studied here a few months back. Let's just remind us of what John has been, the very foundation in chapter 1 of everything John's doing is to show that the light of the world has come into, the, into being. Look at verse 4 through 5. In him, talking about this Word it was in the beginning. In him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. So there is no life without the light. There was a, uh, and it tells you that John comes to, John the Baptist comes to talk about Jesus, and he himself is not the life, but he was one to sent to declare the light, to make the light known to people there in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not 
come, did not overcome it. Excuse me. And to continue on here in John's thoughtfulness through this passage, verse 8, he says, again, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. What was the light? Verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We observed his glory, light, glory of the one and only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The entirety of John's gospel is devoted to the fact that the glory of God has been shown through the life and person and work of Jesus. And he and he alone is the light of our life. And if you think this is just John's thing, well, let's just also consider what John says later on in the epistle in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I'll turn there really quickly. You can if you wish to go there as well. Verses 5 through 7. In this, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. This is John, same John. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. Right? Like, there is no darkness in Jesus. Can't possibly be. If we say we have fellowship with him, God, Jesus, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we are practicing the truth. So in other words, what he's making it very clear here is that there is this dichotomy between darkness and light, between sin and life, death and life. And you cannot pretend that you're walking in life if you are actually walking in death. Jesus' mission is crystal clear. And more than that, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have, you and I, have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's so important for us to gr grasp this. And it's not John, it's there's, there's Paul and James speak to these things. James 1.16, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. To be deceived means to what? Walk in darkness. Paul says in 2 Timothy and 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and becoming deceived. Why? Because they're walking in darkness. Titus 3, verse 3, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Why? We were once walking in darkness. We were blind. And so to receive Jesus is not just some arbitrary prayer or walking an aisle or spiritual experience that we've turned it into sometimes these days, but it is to receive Jesus is to, to be so consumed in him that you are living in the light of his life. Friends, understand the full weight of verse 12. It's so important. Only in Jesus do we have the light that blows up the darkness of our self-deception, the darkness of our disobedience, the darkness of our enslavements to the world. And darkness, friends, indeed is debilitating. And to continue to live there is to deny the light that you have if you will receive it by faith. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. The second heading that I want us to take notice of is what we see in verses 13 through 20. 
the nature and the root of this darkness. We want to understand this darkness that Jesus is revealing through his light. He wants you and I to take good notice of the root of it. And I believe he shows us the root of it in his engagement here with these religious leaders, with these Jewish leaders here. And I want us to kind of think about it, okay? The first thing that you want to notice is, first of all, verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself and your testimony is not valid. So what they're doing is they're doing everything they can to discredit Jesus. And what they're inevitably thinking is what Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 31, when he says, I don't, if I testify by myself, then my testimony is not true. So they're trying to, they're trying to kind of hook Jesus. They're trying to you know, get him in a, in a corner, and, and they're trying to use his own words against him, if you will. So important that they're trying to do this, because they're, they're really kind of at their last leash with how to even deal with, the, with Jesus and his ministry. Now, but the problem was, because they knew also, and Jesus talks about later on here, that the law demanded two, at least two testimonies, two witnesses. And so they're like, okay, great, we got Jesus. We have got him in the corner. He cannot wiggle out of this. If Jesus is just testing by himself, well, then Jesus' testimony must be, must be set aside. This is, this is their whole, like, this is their plan. Foolish plan, but it's a plan nonetheless. I don't know about you, I've had many plans in my life, and they turned out to be quite foolish plans when it's all said and done. And this is a foolish plan. And so what does Jesus respond in verse 14? If I, even if I testify by myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I am going. What Jesus is saying there is, okay, I know what you're trying to do, so I'll play by your rules. I love it. Like he even uses their own ideas against them, their own, their own philosophies, their own perspectives against them. I know who I am. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. You don't know me, and you don't know, certainly don't know where I come from and where I'm going. So this is Jesus saying, okay, great, I'll play your game for a minute. In fact, I'm going to play your game precisely the way that you're playing it. I love it. It's beautiful. And so what does he do? Well, what does he say there in verse, uh, verse 15? Um, verse, yeah, you judge by human standards and I judge no one. And if I ju- do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but, and I, but I am the Father who sent me. What Jesus is making clear here is that his testimony is validated by the fact that his Father sent him and he's doing what the Father has been revealing to you and he's accomplishing everything that the Father said he was going to do and you are just blind to it. My testimony is true because I do have another witness. I don't just have my own words in this. I have, I have the full force of the Father's sending of me into the world to fulfill the mission and obey him and make him and please him. He's, 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 kind of, he's, he's putting them in a place where they have nowhere else to squirm. Right? And not only has he sent me into this world, but when I fulfill all that the Father has told me to do and called me to do, I'm going back to him. And you know what the Father's going to do for me? He's going to glorify me. And he's going to do what Paul tells us. He is going to be the, the, the king of all kings. And every mouth will have to confess that I am king. I will get, be glorified. I've come to obey the Father, to accomplish all that he's asked me to, to he's called me to, to do, and I will go back fully pleasing the Father because I've accomplished those things, and you will have to see me as the king of kings. 
he's validating his testimony because his testimony is actually valid. And he uses this idea of judgment to continue to push forward the point. You judge by human standards and I judge no one. But if I judge, my judgment is true. Why? Because it's not just me who judges, but it is the Father and, and I together who judge. Right? He's saying to them, you think you're judging well. But your judgment falls short. He says there in verse 15, right? You judge by human standards. Now, what are human standards? It could be nothing else but judging by the darkness, right? George judging according to the flesh, which of course is caught up in darkness. In other words, he's saying the reason you don't see me as a light is just because you yourself are caught up in the darkness. You are judging according to the flesh. And the root of the flesh, of course, we know is found in the fall. The root of the flesh is, is found in Adam and Eve who chose the singular testimony of the serpent in the garden. So who's believed only one testimony? Adam and Eve and you and I collectively have believed in one testimony, the serpent's testimony. Never once did, they, did Adam and Eve decide that they were going to go back and trust. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How would God have us to, to, to confront? They didn't believe his word. They believed the word of the serpent, the word of Satan. That is the nature of darkness, is to believe only one testimony. The reason God puts this idea in Scripture that two witnesses must be true is because ultimately, yes, it helps our judicial system and all those fun things, but ultimately it's about the fact that it testifies to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are testifying together to the validity of all the work of redemption He is doing. So in other words... Jesus is really asking them the question, whose judgment is really valid here, yours or mine? I come with the full force of my Father, the pleasure of my Father to do my work, and, and, and who do you come in the name of? Darkness in the flesh. So whose testimony is true here? Whose judgment is true? My judgment is divine. The Father and Jesus' judgment is valid because it's eternal. It's grounded in the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And not only that, he even goes to the law there in verse 17. Even your law, and which is kind of interesting, he says your law. It's not like it's their law. It's the law of God who's given, been given to them. But even your law is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. But he's using that force to say, look at and examine the own thing, the very things that you've been taught in. The law of God that my father and I gave you in the garden and has been subsequently revealed in the Ten Commandments and the law through Israel, that law proceeds from the judgment of God, not your judgment. And this is what we sometimes deal imprudently with the, God, with the Scriptures, is we use the Scriptures for our judgment. We read the Scriptures from our judgment, and therefore we turn people down the wrong road and we become blind guides ourselves the law of god is god's judgment dispelled to god's people for them to take and live god jesus makes this declaration i am the light of the world again why because of all the law has been revealing everything that god has been doing and they cannot see it because their judgment is rooted in their fall, rooted in the fall of man, rooted in sin. The big idea there, though, 
before we move on to this last point, it's very simple, right? Darkness ultimately denies the lordship of God today, just like it did in the garden. These guys and any form of us who may do the same thing, we, we do this and we're doing the exact same thing that our parents who've gone before us did in Adam and Eve. When we don't trust the law of God, we don't trust the spirit of God, we don't trust what God has revealed, we are denying the lordship of God. See, that's what Adam and Eve did, right? God said, and the servant comes in, well, did God really say? And all of a sudden they're like, I don't know, really? Did I'm, I'm not sure. And they obey the serpent rather than what God had revealed. That's a living according to the flesh. That's living according to darkness. I want you to understand. Darkness, friends, is pervasive because it can, we cannot see the full majesty of God's grace to us and his promises when it's beset over our lives. And a lot of times, even as believers, if we're not careful, we'll stop and we won't take, the, take notice of the way darkness still works in our own hearts, in our own minds, through things like disbelief or suspicion or sometimes outright hostility to the way God has ordered the world and we just don't like it. Christians should be aware, not just for our friends who are unbelievers who are walking in darkness, you should be aware of darkness in your own life too. And you should hear Jesus' declaration, I am the light of the world. Walk in the light of my life. Don't fall into the deceptive ways of the world. Do not fall by the games of the world. Don't fall into the arguments and debates of the world. Like these are for the world and they will die. They will perish. They will burn up. Friends, know that darkness is very much real even for us now as we wait for Jesus. Last, this leads us into that last point. We must consider well the consequences of remaining in the darkness because I don't know that sometimes we, we really press into this. I think we, we've done our Sunday school work. We know we remember Jesus. We get our fire insurance and all that fun stuff, but we don't really take stock of the consequences if you and I, believers, or and obviously the world itself, continues to walk in darkness. And I'm going to urge you, friends, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer this morning, to take good stock of the darkness that is surrounding you if this is where you are and ask you, plead with you to walk into the light after we get through with this part of our text. Because Jesus makes no uncertain terms. To the degree that Jesus is not vague about his declaration about being the light of the world, he is no less vague about the reality of darkness in your life. Sin is not nuanced, though it wants to appear nuanced in your life. Sin is not veiled. No, it's very, very much real. And it is seeking not to suddenly come into your life. It is seeking at any moment to destroy your life. Jesus says as much in verse 21. Then he said to them, I am going away, you will look for me, and just think about the power of these last words, you will die in your sins. 
Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is making it very clear. To remain in darkness is to remain separated from the God of the universe who created you. Do you want to take that chance? Do I want to take that chance? I certainly hope not. I found myself in pretty dark places in my life. But he's making it very clear. The singular nature of this sin he's talking about here is not just the sins that we're a part of, but the root sin of it all is to not believe and trust in the God of the universe. I'm going somewhere. You can't go there. Why can't you go there? Because you're going to die in your sin because of why? You don't believe me. That's what he says there in that next, uh, next verse there in verses 23 through 24. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So, so when they respond to Jesus about them dying, when he goes back, they're like, okay, wait a minute. Is he suicidal here? Is he going to do something radical? Which, by the way, was very not uncommon for radical religious wingnuts to do these kinds of things. We've seen them in our own time. They've been doing this for generations. It's nothing new. And so they are responding to Jesus like, well, he's mentally unstable. Another way to discredit him. And Jesus says, nope, you misunderstand as you have been. I'm from above, you're from below. The reality of what Jesus is making clear here is God is holy, you are not because of darkness, of sin and death. Sin is the root, he's saying, of the darkness that separates you from God. God is of heaven and you are of this world and those worlds shall not meet without Christ's intervention. That's how serious the problem is. Jesus didn't just come in and put a little band-aid on the problems you and I have. He made two worlds collide between God's holiness and our sin. And our brokenness and our depravity and our rebellion and our rejection of God. So this is the first thing I want you to take notice of, of why this is so serious. There is a consequence to our sin. When we don't take the gospel seriously, we don't live in the light of light of Christ, you and I are submitting our lives to the consequence of sin and death and to live eternally separated from the God of the universe who made us and designed us and loves us and has shed his grace upon us. They miss it. Because they don't see the weight of their sin. And friends, I dare say that many of us have found ourselves in those places ourselves. Maybe even here this morning. The root of your unbelief is not trusting Jesus to be the light of your life. Jesus is, says it here in verse 24 very clearly. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That word, that construction, I am he, is a kind of an odd construction in Greek. I usually don't do a lot of Greek work here on, in the sermons, but it's important to take notice of this because lots of commentators have debated the, the nature of this, but almost all of them have come to one conclusion. What Jesus is trying to say here and what, what John is trying to say through the words of Jesus, he is trying to say this, for if you do not believe that I am who I am, 
you will die in your sins. Does that sound familiar to you? If you know anything about, the Isra about Israel and, the, and, and Moses going into the desert, into the wilderness there, and the fire, uh, the, the burning bush, who are you to tell my people that I am? I am who I am. Tell them I am sent them. That sounds incredibly weird to us in our way that we do our vernacular, but it's something that has some force. God, first of all, cannot be defined except for whatever he reveals about himself. And Jesus is coming on the scene here, and he is unambiguously telling them what the answer to their sin is. You must believe that I am who I am. I am the God who has made the promises to you long before you got to this point, my friend. I'm the one who rescued you from your slavery in Egypt, which, by the way, is really rescuing you from your sin and your death and your enslavement. I am who I am. And again, they don't get it. Verse 27, who are you? How could he be more clear? How could he be more clear than what he has already been? He is being unambiguous with it, right? You don't know. They did not know that he was speaking of their father there. Who are you? In other words, what they're saying to him is they're saying, we don't know who you are, so how can we believe who you are? And that doesn't make any sense to us. It's because you don't know the great I am yourself. The Jews don't see what Jesus has been saying, what he's been laying down. I am sent. I am sent. Again, this is in a context of several I am statements we're going to run into. We've already run into I am the bread of life. Today we're running into I am the light of the world, and we'll run into several more as we get through John's gospel. In other words, he's making it very clear. In this, the light of the world is to what? I am sent with the Father's message. The message is one of both hope and judgment. That's the thing about the cross that we don't understand. We always think about the gospel and the, God, and the cross is just hope, and it is indeed that. But the cross is also judgment. Because when Jesus goes to the cross and offers his life as a substitute for ours, he is then therefore also saying to the world, unless you believe in me, you will die in yours. You will die in yours. The cross is never just one-dimensional. It is multi-dimension, two-dimension. It's, it's, it's beautiful. He says, I am the one who does the Father's will there, and later on, so Jesus said to him, when you lift me up in this, uh, the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things to you, the one who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, because I always do what the Father what, the, what, what pleases him, what pleases the Father. Jesus is making it clear. I know, you want me to tell you who I am? I am the one with the Father's message. I am the one sent by the Father to accomplish his mission. And I have come and I will please my Father and my Father alone. I am doing what you were designed to do, but you cannot do because you are in sin and in darkness. So the question for all of us this morning then is what does that mean for you and I? Because in verse 30... After people had, after he had said these things, it says many believed in him. Now we understand that that belief can be very, very thin at this point. We people are still working this kind of thing out. But whatever it was that Jesus was saying, based on, based on these words, "I am the light of the world," 
I am the one sent by the Father. I am the one with the Father's message. I am the one who's accomplishing the Father's mission. I am the one who is pleasing the Father. Everything that, by the way, Adam and Eve were designed to do in themselves, but failed to do. You and I must consider the consequences of darkness is death, but the hope is faith. Believe. There's an urgent call on this morning, friends. And I trust that the majority of the people sitting in this room believe in Jesus. And that's beautiful, wonderful. And, and I've seen indications of your own, uh, of your own faith in Christ. And I, and, I, and I take great joy in that as one of your pastors here at Grace. Trust me, I do. But do you understand that if you do not believe, and I'll tell you this, if you are in this room this morning and you have not believed in Jesus, I cannot tell you a lie. You will die in your sins. I can't put it any plainer. And I pray that if you're sitting in this room right now and you have not given your life to Christ, that today will be the day that the light is shed on your heart and you will see Jesus for who he really is. The only way to truly know Jesus, though, and Jesus makes it very clear here, is when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know who he is. In other words... There will be no denying who Jesus is because he's the one who is lifted up on that cross. He bears the weight of shame and guilt from the Father for the sins of those who would be saved by faith. The only way, the only way you and I can believe is to believe in what he has done as he's been lifted up on that cross, bearing the shame of sin and guilt and, and, and death. And he says and he bids us through the Holy Spirit to come and believe and to receive, by the way, not only that, but his resurrected life. Don't die in your sins. Children, I don't know where you are. I don't know what message you've gotten. I pray and I trust that your parents have been faithfully teaching you the gospel all these years. But if you are here and you have not come to this place, I'm begging you. I'm not manipulating you. I'm not trying to get you to make some emotional decision this morning. But you need to consider the weight of sin and the only hope you have to overcome it. And that is in Jesus as he's died on the cross for your sins and he rose to give you new life that you cannot earn on your own. And I want to say it even more plainly. Believe him now. You're not guaranteed another second on this planet. You're not guaranteed one more breath in this glorious human experiment. You're not guaranteed one more breath. And so for the unbeliever, seems pretty clear, right? Take Jesus by faith today. There is no work you must do to receive Jesus. Isn't that amazing? You simply trust him. I pray that you will take time to consider that, whether it be after the service, with your parents, or, or yourselves this afternoon, maybe even before you come back this evening for the potluck. I know me and Justin and Delon or anyone else will be, be happy to have conversations with you about this. But if you are a believer, though, because I feel like this, what we need to do here is we're, we're okay with this with unbelievers. We're okay with this message with unbelievers. But I'm not sure that Christians are okay with actually confronting their own darkness sometimes. We assume the gospel, but we don't actually live and stand in the light of Christ that we ourselves have obtained. And I just want to make sure I say before we are done this morning, believer, repent 
of darkness that has controlled your life. Because I'm telling you, it does and it has. And I walk with Christians constantly who are in there. And I have people walk with me when I have been in darkness. And it's been a wonderful gift for someone to love me enough to say, Son, are you living in light? Or are you living in darkness today? If you are in Christ, believer, there is no shame of walking out of your darkness no matter how dark your darkness has been. Because the light has one goal, destroying the darkness. Well, how would we live in the darkness if we will not, if, if we have such great promise of the light that destroys the darkness in our life? Friends, as you come to the table here in a moment, and our brother Delons will come and lead us in that time here in a second. Remember that you are coming here. And I want to make say I say this. If you have grievous, unrepentant sin, you should not come to the table. And I don't mean that you shouldn't come to the table this morning. I'm saying do business right now and not because by you coming here somehow or another you're, you're, you're you, like you can do enough to be clean enough to come to the table because I'm going to tell you right now, you can't do it. What I'm urging you to do is to right now by faith, trust Jesus to help you walk out of that darkness. And I mean you by faith come to this table and you trust in what Jesus has accomplished through his blood, the, bread, the wine, and through the bread. I'm doing everything Delon needs to do this morning, so Delon, I'm making your job easy. But the point is, do that. Why? Because, friends, there's no reason to either die in our sins and there's no reason to suffer in them either. And I know myself, myself so many times. I've suffered an unnecessary sin for no reason at all. Only because I let the shame of the darkness crowd out the power of the light in Christ. Father, help us this morning as we finish up our time. I pray, God, as we think about these things and the declaration that Jesus has made here this morning, that we would be filled with the, the joy of the Spirit this morning for those of us who are believers. And, God, if there is believers here this morning who need to do work and repentance and then by faith trust that you have washed away their sin and they come freely to this table, God, would you just do that this morning? If there are people here this morning who have not yet trusted in Christ and it is time for them to do it, maybe you've been urging them already, maybe today's the day to do it, or maybe this is just the first step in that process, God, we trust that you're going to do that as well. We love you, God, and we thank you for your mercies that you show us every day in Christ. Amen.